This is the Hoff Time Report with Idaho Freedom Foundation President Wayne Hoffman, one of Idaho's most respected, influential public policy voices. Welcome back for another Hoff Time Report, our favorite time of the day, and we have a special guest here, uh, Senator Chuck Winder, the President Pro Tem of the State Senate. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to have you here. Um, Thanks for having me. I know you're on a short schedule, so we'll go ahead and be, be quick and get, get right to, to it. What's the number one thing for you this legislative session? Well, I think the main thing we're trying to do is rein in the control of the governor and have a balance of power. Uh, but when we really get down to what's most important to me, it's going to be uh, property tax relief. It's going to be dealing with uh, income tax, dealing with the grocery tax, just trying to figure out a way forward because we've got a lot of money in the uh, surplus and, and uh, money that wasn't spent. So we've got to give some of that back, prepare for rainy days, and uh, keep our state moving. Now, let's talk about that power situation. Okay. We've been looking at that. You've been talking about that since August. You had a list of items that you wanted the legislature to take up this session to rein in the governor. Right. How much of that list have you managed to cross off so far? Uh, we've actually crossed off a very few things. Uh, we came to the conclusion that we couldn't do it with a uh, concurrent resolution. Uh, one of the things that happened was uh, we were going to vote on uh, our resolution that basically ended the uh, emergency orders, not the emergency declaration. And that day, the uh, governor went from stage two to stage three, which basically uh, negated what we were trying to do in that resolution. But we do have bills that have been introduced both in the House and the Senate, which are really the key to this. Uh, And many of those items that were on that list are in those two bills. Uh, Our bill uh, on our side, I believe it's 1054. And on the House side, I believe it's 98. Uh, if you look at those, they deal with different sections. One's uh, man-made, uh, man-caused types of emergencies, and the other's natural disasters. And we've tried to separate those two because we think they are separate and distinct, short-term versus long-term. How confident are you that you'll you'll get your list checked off and that the, the, the executive branch will truly be reined in when you're done? Uh, I'm pretty confident of it. I mean, I think we have good consensus, you know, on our... Uh, in our caucuses on both sides, the House and the Senate, we've worked on down to, you know, where you put the commas, you know, on uh, uh, Section 46601 uh, and 461008. Uh, those are the keys. That's where the authority comes from for the uh, governor, the director of the uh, Department of uh, Health and Welfare, or the, uh, and then you get off into the uh, 561003, which deals with uh, health districts. And we're going to try and uh, get those under control and get it down to where everybody's essential. You can't just get rid of people and say your job's not essential. We're going to make it so that uh, the emergencies can only last so long without the uh, approval of the legislature. So we're going to do some of those things. We've got a constitutional amendment that's been passed out of the House. Senate has it. So I think we're on our way, uh, but we still have some work to do yet, as you know. Does it feel as if the goalposts keep moving on this? Because we had sort of a clear trajectory of what stage two and stage three and so forth looked like back last summer. And now stage two and stage three, or I don't even know that I truly understand what they do anymore. Yeah. And, and I understand, I saw Senator Vick complaining a little bit about the goalposts moving. What, what are your thoughts yeah, on that? I think both Senator Vick and Senator Johnson have made great points that you know, the governor and the executive branch is not really even following the CDC guidelines. And the CDC guidelines don't have all these closures, don't have the, you know, the restrictions that uh, we've seen. 
Uh, so there's still restrictions on uh, 50 or more. Uh, there's still restrictions on going to your kid's basketball game, going to your uh, daughter's dance recital. So those things are still in place, and those are the orders uh, that we have to get to, and those are in code. And since we're given to them by code, we should be able to change those by code. Uh, will he veto them? He might. Uh, we're hopeful that we can actually get to a point where we've got, you know, some language that's acceptable so that he doesn't veto, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see how this plays out over the next couple of weeks. Let's talk about tax policy. Okay. Uh, you mentioned property taxes, and I was surprised by that because last year no progress was made. I didn't see a lot of momentum so far here at the beginning of February. I haven't seen any bills to really rein in property taxes. What are you envisioning is going to happen? Well, last year, you know, we tried to get the uh, house to look at the uh, – Circuit breaker, uh, we wanted that, felt that needed to be increased to help the, the poorest of people. Uh, the House didn't take that up. Uh, we also had the homeowner's exemption, which we passed out of the Senate, uh, which the House didn't take up. So we thought those were actually tax relief. Uh, what the House was trying to do with their bill was to basically put a cap on spending uh, for the uh, and growth within the cities and counties. And I think we came to the conclusion that that wasn't tax relief. That was merely just trying to, to rein them in. It didn't give anybody any uh, property tax relief. One of the good things the governor did with some of his COVID money uh, was he gave an option to counties to uh, lower their taxes, and, and people did see lower taxes in those counties that uh, accepted that program. That was one of our policies, and we were glad to see the governor take yeah. that up. But I want to get back to the difference between the House and the Senate where you're saying – the circuit breaker and the homeowner's exemption comprise property tax relief. But if you're, you know, 49 years old and happen to live in Ada County and your property taxes are going up 20% a year, hello, that's me, um, That this doesn't help. How old any. are you? I'm 49. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. 49. <laughs> there you go. This doesn't help. And, and that's the issue. So is yeah. there a way to, is there a way to, to bridge that gap between the House and the Senate where it's not just tax relief for some and actually you do rein in city and county government that are spending, or do you believe that's not an issue at all? No, I think it is an issue, and I think there's a way to deal with it. Uh, some counties, it's not a problem, and others it is. Wherever you've got a high growth, you've got a lot of demand for services, and we've seen it in Ada County, up in Cooney County, and Twin Falls, and over in Bonneville. Uh, so those areas that, where they're growing fast have a need. Do they... You know, some of the tax formulas, the way they work now, they basically just shift taxes around. So that's not a good thing. So you, I believe, based on what my chairman, Senator Rice, is telling me, that they're working with the House, that they have some plans going forward that will do both. It'll slow down the rate of growth of local city and county uh, budgets, but it will actually provide some property tax relief. And you're confident. You can never be totally confident to say 100%, but I know that's where we're driving. We're trying to, you know, use the surplus we have to uh, do that, but we also want to give ongoing. Uh, and that means uh, potentially reducing the uh, income tax rates, the corporate tax rate. Uh, there's a effort, as you know, the Senate passed, I think it was probably three years ago now, the repeal of the grocery tax. Uh, the House didn't accept that. Uh, so there is an effort there to look at all of the taxes and try and figure out how to how to reduce them and reduce the burden on people. Well, just to make the record straight, that the House 
didn't present you with a grocery tax repeal. The The Senate radiator right. capped right. it. Exactly the House right. did pass it, and the governor at the time, who is yeah. now a spokesperson for the big right. insurance companies, vetoed the bill. Right. I just throw that in there for spite. But, <laughs> and, and that's very but, true. But the current governor says he wants to repeal the tax on groceries but didn't present that as the number one option right. before the legislature. So how do you read that? Well, I, you know, I read it that he realizes that there's a difference between the House and the Senate. The House so far hasn't taken it up, you know, with a majority of the people over there wanting to get rid of grocery tax. So I think what you may see is some type of a hybrid or some phasing out. Uh, you know, you, they've talked about increasing the, uh, the amount of credit. Uh, I don't think they're there yet to get rid of the grocery tax. You want to, would, would you prefer to see the, the credit raised or the tax eliminated? Um, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's a matter of definitions, but when you get down into the weeds and start talking definitions, you don't get a lot of support because, you know, what's essential, what should be uh, considered things that are off limits for. Is it the SNAP program? Right, is right. It, you know, is we've, dry goods? Right. Is it so we've gone through all that stuff before trying to figure it out. So I think, you know, at least what I'm hearing on our side from the ones that are being vocal about it is they'd like to see a, across the board types of reductions, uh, help the property tax uh, burdens, uh, reduce income tax, corporate tax, and look at how do you phase out over a period of time the grocery tax. What are you looking at on the income tax side? Uh, they've talked about several different things. They've talked about lowering the uh, rate. I think it's 6.92 now. They wanted to lower it to 6.5. Uh, that takes a certain amount of money uh, to do that one time as well as ongoing. So uh, that's one of the things they've talked about. One of the interesting things that's kind of come out of this is they're actually talking about lowering sales tax on everything uh, as kind of one of those offsets to uh, the grocery tax or things like that, but basically trying to lower the burden on people. If you had your druthers, income tax or sales tax, or perhaps some combination of the grocery tax repeal, and and uh, I mean, I the, the sales tax one is kind of interesting because Typically, people will say things like, well, the income tax is, is the worst of the two. One's a consumption tax, and the other one taxes people on wealth creation. Right. Which, what's your druthers? Well, I think from my perspective, I think we can do a little of both. I think, you know, one of the things you can do is you can lower the rate for both personal and for corporate. And our, and our tax uh, schedule, as you know, is so compressed that I think you only have to make 10500 and something, and you're in the highest bracket. Yeah, it's about $11,000. Yeah, so anyway, uh, you've got that. So I think really what needs to be done is look at all those types of things. Uh, look at lowering income tax. Look at trying to lower corporate. Look at lowering the and reducing and eliminating the sales tax over a period of t uh, on groceries over a period of time. I think in doing that, you can still – uh, take a shot at the sales tax. And I think there's a way, based on what both the executive branch and what the uh, two tax committees are saying, there's a way to do that uh, and still meet the needs, you know, for reasonable growth of the state. Had the pleasure of interviewing both chairs of the education committees. Uh, and there seems to be a lot of talk about, you know, the, the current status of the K-12 education system, certainly the higher education system. I want to talk about those 
with you because you're in a unique position being from Ada County. You've got Boise State University in your backyard, and you've got West Ada School District, the biggest school district in the state in the backyard. With West Ada, it's kind of fascinating because they staged a a teacher sick out, and there are no real repercussions for that. The school board has to negotiate with the union. Is there something that can be done to rein that dynamic in? Well, you know, I think there is something that can be done. I don't know whether the legislature has the ability or the stomach to do it, but one of the keys to what's going on with the unions right now is they don't represent a majority of the teachers. Uh, They have a process, basically, where someone can sign a card, basically, and say, I give you the right to represent me. They don't pay any dues. They don't have, they're not really members, Uh, and I think to me, that's something that needs to be looked at is, you know, why do they have that ability? Uh, I, you know, I think we want to take care of our teachers. You know, I've always been a supporter of our teachers, but do we need the union? And, if, and, and the information I got was the union was actually giving false information at the school board meetings, and there was, so there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes there. Uh, but I think the sick out was wrong. Uh, I think the whole... Uh, idea that, you know, if we got our teachers vaccinated, then we could get our kids back in school. Uh, They were given the high priority for vaccinations. I think a lot of them did it, but most of them, you know, maybe majority still haven't. Um, And that's their choice. We're not going to have mandatory vaccinations in Idaho. That's not part of the plan. I should hope not. I hope not either. So, and so I think, you know, that we need to get our kids back in school. We saw where Meridian uh, just last night voted to try and get kids back into school, all grades, uh, kindergarten through uh, fifth grade have been going full time. Uh, and but anybody in the fifth through 12th were uh, going uh, in hybrid. So they're trying to get them all back in class again. Uh, there was a special effort made to deal with kids that probably need to be in those classrooms the most, the kids with learning disabilities and other issues that they're trying to educate with, the, you know, with those kind of problems and and so it's it's had a severe impact I think and as I watch my own grandchildren uh, one of them's done pretty well because he loves the computer and the other one hasn't done so well is because he's you know he, he likes a computer but it it's not the way he learns and he needs to interact with people and he needs to be you know where a teacher can can help him. Does that raise the prospect for something like an education savings account or voucher program? Well that's all you know the savings accounts already, I think, drafted, uh, and uh, Senator Thane and, and a group are, you know, trying to move that forward. I think, you know, going back to when we uh, tried for two years to go out and find out what stakeholders wanted to do with funding and how to adjust the funding formula, we got all the way to the end, and several of those stakeholders just totally uh, backdoored the committee and, you know, weren't going to go there. So I think the whole issue of uh, how you fund your students versus how you fund your schools really came evident during this COVID crisis. So there's a lot of effort going into how can you fund, meet the needs of the student, meet the needs of the family. Uh, and that was one of the programs that the governor did. He actually used some of the COVID money to help, uh, you know, I think he called it Idaho Strong Families or something like that, where he actually provided some grants to families that didn't have the resources uh, to provide for internet, provide for uh, personal computer devices. So I think that was a pretty good indication that delivery of education is changing. It's not just brick and mortar anymore. It's not just, you know, classroom. You've got to figure out ways to 
have that money follow the student. But you still have a loud voice in the room that does. There was a bill today that uh, would have gotten rid of the August, uh, I think it passed, uh, the committee, but get rid of the August elections. But the point is that the, the school boards association, the Idaho Education Association, the School Administrators Association, all these different special interest groups have a tremendous amount of power. The unions right. have more power in state law than in a lot of other states, states that are far more liberal than Idaho's. How did this happen, and how do you fix that? Um well, I think one thing you look at, you know, who do they represent? Uh, I think that's important to think about because uh, I think there is a way there to deal with that. Uh, I think when you look at, you know, uh, we, we did do some things to reduce the length of contract terms. Uh, you know, we have cleaned up some of the language as to what the boards have to do in negotiating with the, with the unions. Uh, but the reality of it is, uh, even though they represent a, less than a majority of the teachers out there it's still a strong effort when you get people organized and they you know they agree and and even within those members we heard a lot of them you know complaining about the the sick out the various things that have gone on so I think there's a real time period now to really look at the whole structure excuse me of education and relationships with unions and school boards I think the education committees are doing that and I think they'll continue to focus on that. Boise State University. Yes. A lot of noise about Boise State. Yeah. Uh, I don't need to give you all the background about that again. What would you like to see happen this year relative to the university structure? Well, I think, you know, going back to kind of the incidents that I really looked into was the big city coffee uh, brouhaha that happened, uh, you know, where they were asked to come on campus and then a student group, you know, protested them being there because they saw them as, as people that were supportive of uh, Blue Lives. Uh, and so we had that whole uh, issue. I actually met with the owner and Kevin, and I've known Kevin for probably 30 years, so uh, sat down Kevin with Kevin, the fiancé right, of the owner. Kevin right. Holtry. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so sat down with them, uh, gathered information from them. I think they... Uh, you know, and at least in my opinion, uh, the university, while they let them out of their lease and stuff, they had expenses. You know, I think a good faith gesture would be to reimburse them for their expenses that they had just in setting up the business. But that's the, just the symptoms of the problem. And I think the real issue comes down to the way the student government is set up. And right now, as you know, they uh, impeached the president of their group because he said, hey, this is a university. We're here to learn. We should know about both sides of an issue. Uh, as long as people can come and talk about it and you can disagree, well, they impeached him because they didn't follow into their their doctrine. So They actually think, rewrote their constitution so that this group, the Inclusive Excellence Student right. Council, has more say than the General Assembly and the right. Student Senate. Right. Which is really incredible. It is incredible. But and that's what's going on there. And I think, you know, there's an effort from – uh, major contributors, uh, donors, to try and rein some of this in and say, you know, hey, this is a university. It's not going to go uh, liberal. This isn't going to be, uh, you know, the type of university that doesn't allow for Idaho conservative views to be uh, shown here and expressed here by students. The university president contends that it really wasn't the university administration that was involved in Big City Coffee getting up and leaving. Do you believe her? 
Well, it's not a matter whether I believe her or not. Uh, in looking at the facts, gathering emails, gathering the information that I have been able to, it, uh, I wouldn't say that she knew, uh, but I think she was, and she may not have been a, in part of the decision process, but uh, I think she knew enough about it to know that the students were trying to force them out. Uh, didn't want him there. Uh, there was enough of a ruckus going on both behind the scenes and with other staff members that uh, I think that she was probably aware of it. Uh, I wish it hadn't turned out the way it did. Uh, I think they have a right to be on the campus and, and uh, you know, just because they, they didn't display any kind of uh, Blue Lives Matter or anti, you know, Black Lives Matter on campus, uh, this was purely a business deal and it should have been honored that way. So, I think you've seen an effort talked about in the legislature to split out budgets and, you know, try and figure out a way to financially uh, penalize uh, Boise State in a budget so that you get their attention. Uh, but I think the real attention getters coming from the private sector and major donors that have given that university millions and millions of dollars over the years that are basically saying, we've had enough, we're not we're not doing this anymore because we don't like the direction the university's gone. Last year, the legislature said to the universities, get back to your core mission, reduce administrative bloat, let us know what you did to achieve that. Since then, we had the big city coffee issue. Right. University of Idaho, Iowa State University have all been accused, and Boise State have been accused of, and it's not just an accusation, it's real, of having websites put up favorable to Black Lives Matter. Now, a lot of this debate took place over in the, in the House. Do you and the, and the rest of your colleagues in the Senate believe that the universities have done enough? Well, I can't speak for all my colleagues. I can speak for a few of them probably, and I think we believe that there needs to be a balancing occurring, and we haven't seen it. Um, is the problem as big as, you know, as everybody wants us to believe? I think it is. I think it, you know, it's been going on for a lot of years, uh, you know, when you have kids that, are ridiculed because of their Christian beliefs or, you know, in a classroom environment, you know, they're supposed to be teaching uh, values. Uh, they should be teaching, you know, ability to learn and to make people's, you know, have their own decision. But, you know, when you start marginalizing people, you start belittling people because of they believe something different than you do. I don't think that's good for education and it's not good for the students. This is a very strange year where you've got <laughs> – I mean, there's a lot that's that's at stake here, it seems. What is the state legislature's role? What do you believe the state legislature's role is in, frankly, saving our country from what seems like these massive divisions and this redefining? And there are a lot of, we now have people who are self-described socialists, people who ascribe to values that are not in keeping with our founding views, who are in positions of power at national level. What's your role in positioning Idaho against that? Well, I think Idaho is in a unique position. Uh, it's a state that's done very well, continues to grow. It has conservative values. Uh, if you can believe the incoming surveys and the population, the people that are coming here, uh, they're coming here because of the conservative values. They were trying to get away from the blue states and some of the craziness there. I think the legislature definitely has a role of protecting our state. Uh, we can do that through tax policy. We can do that through education policy. We can do that through social policy. And I think that, you know, we have worked around all of those issues and continue to work around them. 
And I think that, you know, we do play a role uh, in all of those areas. And I think that the legislature represents uh, different constituencies. That's one of the things I try to emphasize to people is, hey, somebody that's elected from the north end of Boise comes from a totally different constituency than someone that's elected from uh, Hayden Lake or, or even, you know, West Boise, Meridian, uh, Caldwell or Napa. And, and so there's a variety of, of beliefs across the state, but we all have some common values. I think one starts with our family, uh, our belief in, you know, what is good for our families, what's good for grandkids, trying to keep our culture uh, strong, uh, trying to keep crime rates low. You've uh, staked your ground in one of those issues, which yeah. is the marijuana issue. Right. So you voted for a constitutional amendment along with the, uh, enough uh, supermajority of your colleagues in right. the Senate to say that the marijuana laws of Idaho never change. That seems pretty inflexible for the person who maybe has cancer or, you know, has a kid with epilepsy. Why, why that far? Well, epilepsy, we basically went through a study with Epidiolex. Uh, that was an approved medical prescribed okay, drug. Well, but, but so, and it's a derivative of marijuana. Uh, what we're saying is, is that marijuana, if it truly were a medical marijuana, what would that look like? Is it going to look like Oregon, uh, California, where all you have to do is go and get a green card and somebody calls themselves a dispensary and you go and get your uh, dispensed uh, marijuana? You know, is that really what medical marijuana is? Or... Uh, and I think, you know, looking at it, and, and you and I have had some discussions, I know you've got some ideas, you're working on the House side to try and improve the, you know, and, and revise the uh, constitutional amendment. Uh, I don't know how far that's getting, but I think there's, you know, there's support for if it's reasonable use for medical reasons prescribed for end of life, you know, uh, prescribed for, for medically justified uh, issues. Uh, yeah, ours would get you there, but yours wouldn't get you anywhere. Yours would keep in the existing practice, which is a complete prohibition on marijuana. Well, I don't think it's, I know people have read it that way. Uh, the difference I think is, is basically saying it's still open for study. It's still open for research. We still have the right to try uh, law in Idaho. So in a, in a way, we're saying stay away from recreational but this deals with a lot more than just marijuana, and I think this is the thing. It's easy to, to use marijuana as kind of the, I call it the smoke screen for the, for the uh, amendment. The real reason is uh, it started out as just medical marijuana in Oregon. Uh, then it went to recreational. And the last election, they approved legalization of heroin and cocaine and methamphetamines. Uh, is that where we want our state to go? We're trying to stake our, you know, spear in the ground and say, we don't want to go there. Outside of California, Oregon, Washington, though, would you be comfortable with a medical marijuana law like they have in Utah or Montana or Alaska, uh, where their states haven't gone to pot? I know, I know Utah, you know, thought they had the right answer, but now if you talk to them, they think that it's probably being abused. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a way to do medical, medical marijuana. Dr. Zuckerman testified, you know, during our uh, amendment hearing that, uh, you know, into life, certain types of cancer, uh, for reduction of pain and nausea and that type of thing, that it has a place. Well, let's figure out what that place is and let's, you know, use people that are specialists in a particular, uh, disease or end of life management and, and, uh, 
provide that opportunity. But uh, just to go say we're going to have medical marijuana for somebody that can walk into an office and say I've got, you know, lower back pain and, you know, get your, uh, get your green card to go get your uh, marijuana, I don't think is the way to go because that ends up with basically being recreational. And, and even in Utah, they're saying it's becoming more recreational than it was medical. I have not heard that, but I'll look into that. I appreciate you coming on. We're, we're plumb out of time. Yeah. Thank you for coming sure. on. And if you have people that you would like me to interview on the Hoff Time Report, please let me know. Wayne at IdahoFreedom.org, and I'll be happy to take up your, your uh, ideas. Thank you so much for watching again. You've been listening to the Hoff Time Report with Wayne Hoffman. Be sure to visit IdahoFreedom.org for Wayne's articles. IFF research and show notes from today's episode.